episode 24, Innovating in a Time Machine, with Mark Hurwich from Concentrated Coaching. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I had the great pleasure of speaking with a longtime friend of mine, Mark Hurwich. Mark left directly working within the healthcare industry some years ago and opened up a consulting practice called Concentrated Coaching. I'm not sure actually if he would appreciate that I call it a consulting practice. Perhaps I should call it a coaching practice. The reason that I really wanted to have Mark on the show is because one of the things that he specializes in is helping people who have reached a roadblock, who feel like they're spinning around in circles and not getting anywhere, or who have become confused by change or by their environment. He helps those of us in this situation to overcome the adversity and to press forward in a very sort of, I feel, visionary and strategic way. So I'll let him explain how exactly he goes about that. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Mark. Hey, how are you, Stacy? I am doing really well. Thank you for asking. So can you talk a little bit about what you are doing these days? I, for one, find it fascinating. Okay. Well, thank you. So, you know, I started run a company called Concentrated Coaching and who we serve are innovative business leaders and entrepreneurs and creative people who've gotten blocked in expressing or realizing something that's really important to them. So, they've got the skills to do what they need to do. My clients all have the skills, but somehow something's gotten in the way. And what I do is help them release those blocks. It could be writer's block. It could be entrepreneur's block. It could be fear of networking, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it just seems like in the health industry today with so much rapid change that there just is a lot of people who find themselves in, in that position. Yeah, that's exactly right. The things that have made the health in industry interesting are things that have made it also a very scary environment for people. And um, what I find is that there's a lot of people out there that are trying to solve this problem in their heads and they're getting hijacked by fear, and they just don't have the tools to do anything about it. You, at one point in your storied career, actually worked in the healthcare industry. Did that experience contribute to where you are now? Or could you talk a little bit about how you entered your current career path? Yeah, I guess it was partly uh, persistence, passion, and luck. The persistence part was that I've always been interested in strategy and helping companies you know, release their brilliance. And so I was a consultant for, I don't know, something like 30 years, which probably disqualifies me for a real job, but I call myself a recovering consultant now. And, you know, I was in firms like Wilkerson Group and Monitor. And in addition to innovating practices in those firms, I also helped grow a number of those firms to the point that people like IBM and Cognizant wanted to buy the companies I was a part of. So that was pretty cool. Uh, the thing is, is that you know, I became increasingly convinced that consulting is a well-intended model, but it doesn't really work that well. You know, it's a little bit like going to a golf instructor to learn how to play golf, and he's kind of holding the club all the time. Except at the very end of the lesson, he says, you know, now that you see what I did, you do the same thing. It just doesn't work. 
And it, I actually have to tell you that I learned a lot from a golf coach, not that I'm a great golfer, but it was so much fun to see how he worked. And so I got interested in other ways of delivering the kind of value that consultants were trying to deliver. And over the years, I got into coaching myself. And initially, it was more traditional executive coaching. And I was doing work also in the corporate environment around you know, leaders that were leading with passion as opposed to a more managerial model. This is where luck comes in, I guess. I was working with a client whose wife was a well-published author. She literally published dozens of books. And she had writer's block. And I, I didn't know that. I just could see that she was really unhappy. And so I spoke to her. And you know, I said, well, I have this feeling, this is where luck came in, that if I sat down with you and tried some of these things that I've been playing with in the corporate domain and some of these things I've been playing with in personal growth, because I guess I'd invested in that point about a thousand hours worth of training, I might be able to help you pass this. And so we spent two hours together. It seemed like a good time. And a week later, she called me up and said, oh, my God, this is amazing. I threw out the first 100 pages of my book. I rewrote it. I'm happy. Uh, I fired my agent. I've got a new agent. Mark, you should do this for a living. So that's what I do for a living now. What's the equivalent in our industry, the healthcare industry, of someone with writer's block? Well, there's something I call entrepreneur's block, which is a more direct equivalent. There's something that you're really excited about initially, like you get a, a new idea for a book. And by the way, I, I work with a lot of people that are trying to write articles. I literally do work with people with writer's block, but that's just a small part of my practice. But you know, any, anything that we get that we're initially excited about, it's quite possible that as we move from that initial excitement to trying to realize it, that we get scared in some way, our day jobs get in the way so you don't get to this thing. So by the time you get to it, there's a certain amount of guilt attached to it. And so because of that, you're not as in touch with the thing that really excited you. And so you, you lose that energy of the excitement. You've got all this stuff going on inside you. I should do this. I should do that. And so pretty soon you're kind of in this world of ought to as opposed to can't wait to and you're stuck. So it could be adding something to a business. But it could also be I'm in a business that really isn't delighting me, but I'm afraid to look outside. Or it could be, you know, my job shifted. I need to call on new people, but that's uncomfortable. Or it could be I need to ask for more money than I'm getting for a product or for myself. I don't want to do that. So those are all the kind of blocks that, that people develop that the, uh, the healthcare industry these days, for good or for bad, seems to be creating an awful lot of them. What do they always say? Change is pain. And obviously, we've got a lot of that going on in the health industry today. We've got health information technology, which is evolving at an incredible pace. We've got the vast and vastly unknown implications of the ACA, including massive reimbursement reform. We've got entirely new kinds of organizations that are emerging, and all this could add up to a really, and has added up to a really unsettled place where people are caught in a sort of hydraulic of confusion, maybe is a, a way to put it, where we're all kind of spinning around and not entirely sure where to turn. Is this what you were talking about when you're talking about the block that you can't see through or, or see over? Yeah, that's right. So the interesting thing is that the way we tend to solve those because of our training and because of all the regulation that's in the healthcare industry is by trying to figure it out. You know, we, so we go in our heads and also there's a lot of risk. So we try to put a lot of controls in place. 
And unfortunately, going in our heads and putting a lot of controls in place won't do anything but recreate the environment that we've got. And so that doesn't get us out of the problem. And then we realize we're not out of the problem. So now the stakes are higher. Uh, we've already tried once and it didn't work. So, you know, what humans tend to do is repeat what had worked in the past. We do more of the same. And that doesn't work either. So how does this all affect innovation? I, I think we all realize viscerally that we need to switch it up, that we need to do diff- things differently, just like like you said. But not only is change pain, but it's also kind of scary. Right. And scary always seems to curtail creativity somehow. And it depends upon what kind of innovation. So what passes for innovation is incremental improvement. And that kind of, quote, innovation, close quote, you can do, you know, with PERT charts and planning things and so on and so on. But if you're talking about the kind of innovation that's really breakthrough innovation, you know, stuff that changes the way the industry competes, you can't do it that way. You, you really have to do it by declaring a future that's so compelling you can't not put yourself in it and then aligning around that future. And most people um, don't know how to do that or are afraid to do that. What you're saying is that breakthrough innovation doesn't really come from the same place as as this incremental innovation that we were just talking about. Yeah. And I, you know, um, I wouldn't really call that innovation, but it's what passes for innovation in a lot of companies. So can you talk a little bit about the innovation that you are talking about and what it takes to pull it off? I'm thinking of a company that I worked with at one point that had been stuck at a 50 million revenue level for, I don't know, maybe the prior four years. They'd been a fast growth company before then, but they kind of you know, got to a plateau and then they realized they needed some help. So they sold themselves to another company, but you know, that didn't really change anything. And they were just stuck at that level. And so to get themselves to a different point, they had to imagine a future that was really, really different than the environment that they were in. I actually was was part of an exercise where we did this. And so we talked about, well, you know, what would that future be like? And, and so they talked about a future where instead of being a $50 million player in the industry they were in, they'd be a quarter million dollar leader and what would that mean? And they identified some of the kind of things that would have to happen. So for example, they had three partners serving their largest clients. They said, well, in order for us to get to this level, we'd have to have only one partner serving this client and grow this client another 20%. So they basically identified a future that was a future they really, really wanted. They said, in order for this to happen, here are things that we currently don't know how to do, but we'll have to figure out an answer to this in order for it to take place. And then they, then they said, well, how are we going to make that happen? Then they identified about six of those breakthrough projects, including the one to have a single partner serve their largest client, and implemented them. And interestingly enough, from the point of that meeting, um, and that was actually like a, maybe a three-day meeting with a little bit before and after, the next year the revenues jumped $75 million. So it's a great example of how if you put yourself in the future that you want to be in and you design the future from that place – that you can start to envision things that when you're sitting in the present looking at the future, you just can't even see that stuff. Because when you're sitting in the present, you're just aware of all the problems you have. And it's, it's fearful. And your amygdala gets activated. And your creative centers just get shut down. Um, 
So what do you mean exactly by putting yourself into the future? What exactly does that exercise look like? Is it very concrete? In other words, imagine yourself sitting in a chair. Yeah. Well, I actually, I borrowed that exercise from the corporate environment where we did it, where we do it with 80 people and I do it with uh, my individual clients. So, so part of what I'll do is I'll say, well, you know, okay, right now you're stuck. You're not happy with stuff. So, so if you weren't stuck and you were in the future, you wanted to, to have, what would that look like? You know? So it might be, um, I've added to this new business and it's really exciting for me. And I've got people that are supporting it, whatever it is, you know, use, use I statements. And so we'll have some conversation about that. I'll talk to my clients about the gifts that they have and, you know, why are they on the planet? Um, there's a phrase that I, I started to use called soul intention, which is a little woo woo, but, um, I think that we're all here for a purpose, or at least the people that I like to work with and like to work with me hold that. And so, well, what might that purpose be? So you connect to that. And then I'll, and then I'll say, okay, great. You know, we're going to enter a time machine. So stand up, you know, turn clockwise, sit down, and we'll have agreed on a certain period of time. So maybe it's, it's a half a year out. Maybe it's two years out. And I'm, I then interview them at that date that we've agreed to in the future that they wanted to create. So they're, they're in a place where the stuff that they wanted is there. You know, if you could, if you could rate these statements of, um, I love my job, I'm excited about what I do, um, I am engaged with people around me with passion and interest, you know, whatever they came up with. Um, they're all like sixes and sevens on a one to seven scale. You know, seven is strongly agree. Oh my God, I'm a poster child for this. And then I'll say, well, tell me what that's like. And and I I, I will suggest that they use the rules of uh, uh, improv comedy. Um, so you know, they kind of are going to build on whatever I ask them. So if I say, well, you know, I spoke to your uh, your business partner last week, and they were telling me about this new client that you got and how excited you are about working with them. Tell me more about that. So they'll build on that, and so they're. You know, my, my clients, anybody can do this, are they're in a place where they're by definition excited about what they're doing. And it just, I mean, there's a friend of mine does does neuroimaging and he says, you know, Mark, the way you've got this set up, you're triggering completely different centers in the brain. Their their creative centers, their prefrontal cortex is is firing, their amygdalas are going to be suppressed, they're going to be in a place of excitement. In addition, they're actually having the experience of being a future they want to because there are parts of our brain that can't distinguish between imagining something and it really happening. It's really quite magical. People end up saying things they didn't know they had inside them to say, including a lot of times they come up with solutions to stuff they didn't know how to solve. I was listening to a guy named Hugh Culver speak recently. Hugh was a former pilot, and one of the things he said that really resonated with me is you don't need a to-do list mm -hmm. because to-do lists are very directionless, really. What you should have is a flight plan because in order because flight plans necessarily have to begin with where are you going, and then you work backwards from there. Yeah, that's right. This is kind of more being in the place you want to get to. And you might say, well, well that's really great. I mean, now that you're there, what are some of the things that – you gave yourself permission to do that you didn't realize you had permission to do. Oh, you know, it was okay to make mistakes. Really, what was a great mistake that you made? Oh, uh, you know, I thought the world would fall apart if I, if I launched this product without testing it up the wazoo, but 
I realized that I had to get out in the marketplace. I just got out in the marketplace with these ideas. And you know what? Some of them failed, but I learned a lot. And it was so exciting. I was so in touch with what I wanted to do. It really energized me. I'm so glad I gave myself permission to make mistakes. It has long been the case in the healthcare space that reprising last year's brand plan, for example, if you're in the pharma or medical device or, you know, last year's marketing campaign or updating it incrementally is the safest and most Mm -hmm. predictable course of action. In other words, if we do the same thing that we did last year, we should get the same results as we got last year. And while Doing something completely new is the equivalent of flinging yourself into the murky unknown. Right. But we all know, given the clock speed of the industry today and also the fresh demands of the ACA and, and you know, all kinds of other factors, that we have to try new and innovative approaches, which basically means there's no safe path any longer. Would you say that this future vision, vision exercise helps to generate innovative solutions to new situations or is there a better way to to go about it? Yeah, that's that's an important piece of it. So, you know, when people who are stuck and part of the reason they're stuck is because they can't let go of something because they realize there's something important about it, but they're not connected to the energy of their passions or not connected to the energy of, you know, why am I here? So that kind of exercise can reforge that link. And that's very, very helpful. Um, the thing is, there's something else going on, right? Because if we could do what we logically know we need to do, there wouldn't be a problem. You could just figure it out and you do it. So the fact is, is that we're human. And because we're human, we have this kind of baggage that comes with us. And what happens, I find, is that we've got this internal civil war going on in those situations where there's a part of us that says, hey, this is really important. Let's do it. This is, this, let's go. Come on. How come we're not doing this? But then there's all other parts of us that don't get the benefit and they're petrified of the journey. Oh, my God. You know, the last time I asked somebody for that much money, they laughed at me. Or uh, another part of us might say, oh, yeah. And there was that other time that I tried to do that. And uh, I just turned into an arrogant jerk. I don't want to do that again. So, you know, we've got these parts of ourselves that actually kind of were formed in our early years. Some of them were five years old. Some of them might be 12 years old. And when you get into a situation where there's a threat, those are the parts that are running the show. So that's, that's another element that people kind of have to work with is to find ways for those parts of themselves not to have to feel responsible for a job that's above their pay grade, so to speak. And how do you suggest that people overcome the tendency when they are feel fearful of something to revert to a 12-year-old? Part of that is work I do with people one-on-one, and I'm, I'm working on how can I find ways for people to do that themselves. And I haven't come up with a great answer. So part of what helps would be just simply to allow yourself to be on the journey that you're on with playfulness and self-compassion. So I find that when people are trying to do something really hard, that they're also very critical. We, all, we have these voices inside ourselves that are pretty self-critical. At least I do. I don't know about you. And so just kind of reminding those voices that, listen, we're doing something new. We've never tried this before. There's going to be mistakes and, and what looks like failure. And it's important to allow that. That's a very that's a very useful thing to do. 
In fact, there's an exercise that I use called creating a definition of victory, which is simply what's the thing that if it happened in this difficult circumstance, you could declare it a victory. So it's not like, you know, you got 80% of the votes in an election, you got 51% enough to get elected. What's the bare minimum? Okay. And I ask clients to specify it both in terms of an external result they want, but also what would they notice in themselves? So how would you be in this meeting that you're having, for example? So, you know, if I were, um, I don't know, say that I wanted to explore us doing business, maybe an external result would be that, you know, you and I have a conversation and in the conversation, you feel really good about what I have to offer and you, you have a grasp of it and you can, you're in a position to say, yes, I want to do it or no, I don't. So I'm not saying, by the way, that I sign you up as a client because that, that may not be appropriate and it's going too far. And then I might say something like to myself, like, you know, some of the times when I talk to people like Stacy, I get so excited, I may be doing that right now, that I talk really fast, I don't give them opportunities to ask questions, and so I want to make sure that it's a balanced conversation. That's my internal definition of victory. So I find that when people are doing things that are difficult and they can establish a definition of victory, it makes it a lot easier for them to be easier on themselves and not set up this threshold of performance they can't possibly meet. The other thing that I really noticed that you said there was that you're not only measuring gigantic victories, like, you know, passing million dollar thresholds, but, you know, things that could be considered game changing, a game changing victory. But also it seems like you're focusing on small victories, like did I successfully navigate this meeting? Yeah, that, that's really right. And I would say over time, I found myself migrating from the middle to the extremes. So like I want people to talk about a future that's like a really exciting future that's compelling and juicy and oh my God, you know, like that would be amazing. So I want, I want them to have the license to, to paint something that's just inspiring. But I don't want them to hold themselves accountable for it right away. The accountability is, I think, if they're, if they're smaller and more measurable, that's a place to be incremental. So, yeah, you're right. One of the things you've said to me before is that doing breakthrough things requires passion. Does this also play into, uh, you know, you're using words like um, inspiring and finding things that are inspiring. Is is finding inspiring things synonymous with what you've said before about passion? Uh, yeah, I would, I would agree with that. If I were going to edit what you just said, I would say it requires uh, a hell of a lot of passion. Or that. So, yeah, it's, it's way more than some degree of passion. So that's, that's correct. And I mean, I don't know, maybe that does sound a little woo-woo, but when I think about interviews I've done with leaders of companies that are really, you know, created environments that are exciting, people like working in them, um, you know, Panera Bread, um, Whole Foods. Um, unfortunately, there's not a lot of examples like that in healthcare, but if you look in, in consumerism, um, there's a lot of companies where you can see leaders trying to create a different environment. Um, can I just interject Joe's? for a second? Yeah. Because sure. that just struck me as kind of epic. I mean, we're getting people who are passionate about groceries or sandwiches, but yet not so passionate about right. saving lives. 
Yeah, you're right. I mean, how ironic is it you go to Trader Joe's and the people at the checkout registers are smiling and excited and you know can't wait to bag your stuff and they're excited about what they're selling and you go to a hospital where people are saving lives. And there are some exceptions, but but most places you just get a sense of burden. That's really, really sad. So I think you're absolutely right. I had never really thought about this before. Yeah. But how can we get past this? How can we working in the healthcare industry become just as passionate about saving lives as others are about making sandwiches? Boy, that sounds like a good blog post, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're not stuck, Mark. You're going to be on that. (laughs) Yeah. So, Stacey, I, I think part of it is connecting to passion and doing it in a way where where people are creating things, probably little projects that they can do that that are different, and and creating some license for that. Which the important thing is probably not what people do, but what they don't do, because there's so much control and regulation, and a lot of it's necessary, but I suspect a lot of it's not. So part of it would be that. But the other thing is just understanding about how human we are, you know, like if you're bagging groceries and you drop some eggs, that's unfortunate, but okay, you know, you broke some eggs, big deal. If you're in a hospital and you're taking some risk, the, you know, the consequences are a lot different. And so I think the parts of ourselves get a lot more triggered in that environment. So I would say in addition to having passion for, you know, what we want to do and what we want to bring about, it's as important to have compassion for you know, these little kids inside ourselves that are scared. And so, okay, well, one question I imagine you might ask is, well, how do you do that? One thing, uh, and there's an exercise on my website actually about this, is just to get in touch with those parts of yourselves that, that seem to be blocking you from doing what you want to do. So if I were an executive that was afraid to make a call on somebody, I would want to get really curious about that part of me that holds that fear about that call. Because until I can find a way for that part to get to a different place, it ain't going to happen. And that makes me think of another way that what you are talking about could be helpful. It's when an organization itself deadens the passion of its employees. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I certainly see that in some of the pharmaceutical clients that that we work with, where someone within that organization might have a really great idea, but the ordeal or the arduousness required to overcome the layers of bureaucracy necessary to get buy-in, it's just so tedious that it kind of beats the passion right out of somebody. Is this same exercise something that someone who finds themselves in that position could could benefit from. Yeah, and I think the way to apply it is not to make the parts of the organization that want to make sure things are done uh, in ways that don't land people in jail, to make those parts of the organization wrong. But it might be to bring some curiosity and compassion to those parts of the organization and see what their intention is and see is there a way to realize that intention in a different way. So it can both enable the organization to be safe and be responsible and enable it to meet an even greater responsibility, which is to um, create an environment that excites people and that serves clients and all those other kinds of things that tend to get deadened. 
Is there a way, and this might not necessarily be a fair question, but I'll ask it anyway. Is there a way to apply what you're saying within the limits of my own control? If all around me, there are people who are bureaucratic and for whom the means are much more important than the ends. In other words, there are people who are much more interested in hanging red tape all over the place in very decorative Mm -hmm. designs than they are necessarily about getting to the next level or supporting innovation within the organization. How can I apply what you're saying simply to my own role? I think there's a couple things that would be fun to experiment with. I'm big on experiments, by the way. So one experiment would be, how can I see the people that are, um, from my current perspective, decorating the office and the landscape with red tape, how can I see them as allies instead of enemies? Because until I, until I can see them that way, not an awful lot's going to change. And the second would be is that if I'm in a future where I've, I've been able to do a few things that made a real difference and really excited me, I'd actually want to put myself in that future, you know, use something like my time machine exercise. And then ask myself, what are the things I didn't realize I had permission to do? Because I guarantee you there's going to be ways – Maybe guarantees too broad, but odds are very, very good that there's going to be ways that an individual in that situation is holding themselves back and doesn't realize it. And and those ways, how would I figure out what those ways are very actionably? Is there some way that I can begin down the path of understanding what my possibilities are? So maybe something like you you get somebody to understand what this time machine conversation might be like, and you tell them, well, here's kind of the results I'd like to achieve. Not ultra specific, but but different from what's there. So, you know, we're doing something that really is different. People realize is exciting. It's having an impact on our on our customers. And then I'd have somebody interview me. I mean, maybe you could journal it and interview yourself, but I think it'd be a lot more effective to have somebody ask you questions that you're not quite expecting are going to come. But, you know, kind of like the conversation we're having now, Stacey, like you've asked me a few questions I never thought about before. And so it's always interesting to see what comes out of your mouth when someone intelligent asks you questions in the spirit of what can we create? I, I want, I don't, I'd encourage people to do that. So an action plan could be start with the time machine exercise to figure out what your future looks like in a year or so. And then have somebody, slightly objective somebody, Mm -hmm. ask you questions about that vision. Yeah. And it's important, by the way, that they're asking you questions at that point in time. So in other words, it's not like, gee, it's uh, uh, September of 2014 and we're looking at September of 2015. You're both in September of 2015. I know you gave some before, but what are the kinds of questions or or buckets of questions that that interview should consist of? Or is it important that it's free form? I think it's important that it it be free form and there are some specific questions. So so first of all, you know, you're going to have articulated the outcome that you want in, say, five or six dimensions. So if you're talking about something corporate, maybe there's revenues, how's the operation change, what's happening with people, What's happening with our, you know, training efforts? What kind of new customers have we got? Have we impacted the competitive environment? 
Um, you know, how has this impacted our finances? I mean, you know, kind of the list goes on. So, so you've got those, the, you've got um, assertions about what the future will be like in those dimensions. So one thing would be to ask, well, gee, you know, you've been really, really successful. And I know that one of the areas you want to be successful was in attracting new customers and new customer relationships. What that's, what's that like now? And be really specific. How many new customers? Um, what's the most exciting thing about them? So really kind of drill down as if you were a reporter doing a, you know, a business case study on this amazing result this company achieved. All the questions that reporter would ask, that's what you want to get asked. That's really interesting. And I suppose what you'd want to do is tape that and then you could really yep. capture the genius that's kind of locked in your brain that you don't even realize is, is in there. Yeah, and that, that's a brilliant way to put it, actually, Stacey, that there is genius that we have, that when we let ourselves connect to the energy of something that's really important, it just kind of spills out. Hmm. I'm thinking of some exercises, which I will need to perform. <laughs> so, by the way, in addition to those questions that I mentioned, uh, also people should ask themselves, what, what is it that I've learned in this journey? So it seems weird that you could sit down with someone, have them teleport to a year from that point, and even though in real time, you know, only maybe an hour or two has progressed, they can still answer some of the same kind of questions they'd have if they really had a year of learning. But trust me, they can. I've done this, I don't know, probably 100, 150 times, and people always have some kind of learning. So what did you learn is really important. And then the other question that I always ask and almost always get a great answer to is, so, you know, now that you look back on this, I bet there are some things that you, you didn't realize you had permission to do, but because you didn't realize you had that permission, you withheld it. What is it that you've given yourself permission to do? That's pretty much how I ask it. And people will say things like, I, oh, you know, I, I didn't give myself permission to try this. I didn't give myself permission to look foolish. I didn't give myself permission to, um, I don't know, I, I'm trying to think of some great examples, but it's amazing what people come up with. And the kind of the interesting thing is it doesn't matter so much what it is externally. Like you can kind of, you know, when somebody gets an insight, like, like there's that facial expression that they get, like it's dawning on them and there's a real shift almost always produces a shift like that. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I also think that has been well represented in cartoons. You know, that funny caricature of people when the light bulb goes off. Exactly. It has yep, been represented it. on the funny pages. That is how pervasive it is. Is there anything that we did not talk about that you think is important that you want to talk about today, Mark? I, we did mention self-compassion, but I really want to underscore that, that a lot of times when people take this journey, either someone else is beating them up or they're beating themselves up. And I find that the main difference between people who are successful in making these shifts and those that aren't, a lot of it has to do with how much self-compassion and playfulness they can allow themselves. Because it's hard. You know, it's really, really hard. This is hard work. It's not easy. And so it's not going to proceed smoothly. Being able to get to a place where you can kind of laugh a little bit with yourself and give yourself the compassion you give to somebody else if you saw them trying to do these things is really key. 
That definitely sounds like something we should all keep in mind to cut ourselves a break. Yep. Where can people find you, Mark, if they would like a little bit of further advice from you? Sure. My website is concentratedcoaching.net. I call it concentrated coaching because um, I wanted a model that people could work with me for a couple of sessions and that would be it. So it's very concentrated. Um, if they just Google concentrated coaching or entrepreneur's block, they'll probably get to the same place. And if they do that and they go to my resources page, um, they'll find a couple of things there that will be helpful. So they'll find an exercise to help clarify outcomes in terms of specifying a solution state. Um, they'll find an exercise there. It's a, actually a journaling exercise that can help them develop a little bit more compassion for whatever parts of themselves are holding themselves back. Um, and I'll probably have a few more things there by the time, uh, um, you know, they, they get there. So, um, yeah. And also some links to other people I found useful. I, I, I love doing this work, but I have this funny thing about only wanting to work with people where I'm like the best resource. So I refer about a third of my, the people who contact me for an exploratory session to, to other resources, sometimes just because I want to make sure that, that they have looked at alternatives. So, um, They'll find some other resources on my site as well. I will go there myself and see what goodies you have in store. And while I am there, I will copy the link and also put it on the Relentless Health Value website. Thank you so much for being on the program today, Mark. This has been a really fascinating conversation. Uh, same here. I always have fun talking with you. I may or may not have mentioned this earlier, but my name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Franklin Healthcom. We do, for the most part, managed market marketing for pharmaceutical and medical device organizations, and you can feel free to call us should you need any help in that area. Did you know that you do not have to remember to download the latest Relentless Health Value podcast each week? You can subscribe. If you subscribe, then the episode will be automatically delivered to you in one of two ways. The first way is via iTunes. If you go to RelentlessHealthValue.com and you look over in the right-hand sidebar, you will see a gigantic orange dot. If you click on that dot, you will be taken over to iTunes. And if you hit subscribe there, then every week in your iTunes library, the podcast will automatically download. If you use the podcast app, it will be extra convenient. The other way to subscribe is by looking right underneath that large orange dot to a little form there that says, get the podcast delivered to your email. If you click on that button and type in your email address, then once a week you will get an email with a link to the podcast. It is very easy to subscribe. I'm so glad that you listened this week. Please interact with us on Twitter. We are at Relentless Health on Twitter, and that would be Relentless with only one S. So Relentless with one S, health. Please definitely feel free to interact with us, leave a comment, ask a question. We'd love to hear from you. And I very much hope that you'll tune in next week.